This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 17, The Oldest Company in the World, Keeping It in the Family. Well, hello again, everyone. It's time for yet another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Josh Vierla, your euphonious host, and thanks for being here. In today's episode, we talk about the world's oldest companies and some of the practices that enable them to be the oldest. Specifically for this episode, we're going to focus on mostly Japanese culture, as most of the oldest companies are found here. In fact, the top five oldest companies in the world are located in Japan. But part of what makes this so unique, in Japan having the oldest companies, is the case of adult adoptions, which Japan uses a lot. But before I get into that, let's check out some of the other oldest companies. Here's what I know. If I were to ask you to name the oldest company in America, what name would you think of? Goodyear? Jim Bean? Well, those would be wrong. How about what industry would the oldest company in America be in? Automotive? Mining? Newspapers? All wrong again. The oldest company in America which is still operating is Shirley Plantation. This farm was established in 1613 in Virginia, predating the founding of America itself. Originally, it grew tobacco and has been under ownership of the Hill-Carter family since 1638. Interesting side note here, one of the Carters, Anne Hill-Carter, married a fellow by the name of Henry Lee in 1793, and they would later be the parents of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. But today, Shirley's plantation gives tours while being a working plantation as well as a private family home and a National Historic Landmark. Now, that is old, but it is a mere newborn in the terms of oldest companies. Let's go to some older ones, shall we? How about the oldest manufacturing company in the world? Founded in the middle of the Renaissance in 1526 by Italian master gun barrel maker Bartolomeo Barretta, the Beretta Company has been continuously controlled by the Beretta family since its inception. Well, Josh, that is pretty old. But I can do better than that. Another Italian company called Marinelli Bell Foundry rang its first bell in 1040 AD. Located in the town of Bells in Malice, Italy, it has been family-owned for 700 years and currently makes about 50 bells a year. And these are big church bells, not those little dingy ones that you put on your door. But this company is merely the 13th oldest company in the world. How about a little wine? Everyone likes wine, right? The Chateau de Galene Winery, and I hope I said that right, was founded in 1000 AD and used to be a castle. That castle has been home to the family of the Marquise de Galene for more than 1,000 years. Interestingly, members of this family have fought in the Crusades, just to give you a little perspective on age. 
But there is another winery that is even older. The Staff Etler Hof Winery is located in Krav, Germany, founded in 862 AD. It has been in the same family since 1805 when it was purchased from the Abbey by Peter Schneiders. Alright Josh, enough of these spring chickens. Let's go top five. Okay, okay, I hear you. But for this we must move to Japan. For a country founded in 660 BC, it is bound to have some old companies. Indeed, it is home to more than half of all businesses that were founded before 1700. But like the longevity of some of its people, Japan's companies have curious staying power. Let's examine. Founded in 771 AD, the Gendo Shigio Company makes ceremonial paper products. And I'm not quite sure who the president of this company is now. But the most recent reference I found was someone named Zenro Genda, so I'm guessing it's still in the same family. But if any Japanese listeners know for sure, please let me know. Moving on to the next three oldest are hotels, and I'll list these in order of age, youngest to oldest. Hoshi Ryokan, founded in 718 AD. Senen no Yukoman, one year older, founded in 717, and the granddaddy of all hotels, Nishiyama Onsen Kyunkan, a hot springs hotel founded in 705 AD, still with original shag carpeting. Now I'm kidding about the carpeting, but these hotels are beautiful, and personally, I'd love to stay at any of them, and I'm sure any one of these could warrant their very own episode. Now, I'm not certain if all three of these hotels are still family-owned, but I know at least two of them are. Hoshi Ryokan has been in the same family for 46 generations, and Nishiyama has operated under the control of the same family for 52 generations. And I'll link in the show notes the oldest hotels in case you want to book a trip there, or, you know, take me along with you. Okay, Josh, we can't get much older than these, can we? Well, only 127 years older. The oldest continually operated business in the world is... Congo Gumi. More than 1,400 years old, this construction company was founded in 578 AD to build Buddhist temples. Apparently, Buddhism was taking the country by storm, and Prince Shotoku, son of Emperor Yomi, said he needed more temples. Jemmy, this Buddhism thing is really taking hold. I think we need more temples for the people. Lord Shotoku, what shall we do? Well, Jimmy, I'd build these temples myself, if only my hands had the knowledge. Bring me the most skilled Buddhist temple builder in Japan. Sir, we don't really have anyone skilled in Buddhist temple building. Well, I have the need for more temple builders. I demand more builders. 
Where can we get some? The people, Jimmy. They need their temples. While Korea has some of the best Buddhist temple builders down, perhaps we can get someone from there. Jimmy, this pleases me. Bring me a builder from Korea. So with that, an invitation to Korea was put out and a Korean temple builder came to Japan and thought he'd set up shop because Japan looked like it needed a steady building of temples. And it did. So the Kongo Gumi Company thrived and grew, making temples and other famous buildings such as Osaka Castle. Ah, times were good for Kongo Gumi. Well, that is until the mid-2000s. The company met with some hard times. In fact, it had been struggling since the 90s. And through a combination of bad real estate deals and diminished demands for new construction, the company had to end up selling. And so, in 2006, the last president of the company, Masakasu Kongo, a company that had been in the same family for 40 generations, ended up selling the company to the Takamatsu Construction Group, a company that was only founded in 1965. Oh, so much shame brought upon the family. But I guess the good news is, the Kongo Gumi Company still operates as a wholly owned subsidiary of Takamatsu. However, not family owned anymore. Although to note, the Kongo family still continue their work as carpenters. Okay, so I went through the oldest and some of the oldest companies around. Did you notice anything about them? The fact that a lot of them were family owned should have jumped out at you. So why do these family businesses have the recipe for success? Well, there are lots of ingredients that go into making a successful business, but it seems a large part of it is that family-run businesses aren't as myopically focused on things like quarterly returns and tend to project continuing the family tradition and name going on a much larger scale. This is a long-term focus to be sure. So now what makes Japan so in tune with the business of longevity? Well, in Japan, they have a bilateral kinship system. That is to say that both the female and male line of descendants are recognized. But Japan also has a succession largely determined by patrilineal succession of head of household. So heading a household gives one the control of the household and estate, which would include things like farmland, businesses, etc. This aspect of Japanese life was usually handed down to the eldest son. Now, over so many years, you can imagine sometimes an eldest son wasn't available, like only daughters or maybe someone had no sons. How would the family business and name continue on? The answer to this was adult adoption. And Japan has a long history of this dating back to the 13th century. So when a family found they didn't have a male heir or they had an incompetent or disabled son, they looked elsewhere, outside the family, in the form of adult adoptions. 
Used mostly by samurais at first, it gained popularity outside the samurai class in subsequent centuries. So what would happen is a family might marry their daughter to a man, then adopt that man into their family. He would become what is known as a mukiyoshi, meaning adopted son-in-law. In doing this, the man would assume the family's last name and continue on their lineage as if he were now part of that family, abandoning his old family in name anyways. But what if the family had no sons or daughters? Well, in this case, a family would still adopt a male heir, and this would be most seen amongst families and second sons. You see, the second-born son couldn't be the head of a household if an elder son took the position. So it was advantageous for a second son to be adopted by another family to become the heir of that household slash business. And once you're head of a household, you gain prominence in a community, so win-win for everyone. And if the new adoptee was not to be marrying a daughter, they are free to marry whom they like while carrying on the family name. In modern day Japan, this still occurs, and particularly when a business has no male heir. This adopted son is usually chosen for being business savvy, and this is done with the goal of preserving the family business. You might be familiar with businesses like Suzuki, Kikoman, and Toyota. These companies all practice this tradition of adult adoptions. You'll see members of the founding families in leadership in these companies today. Incidentally, these companies are pretty old themselves, all being over at least 75 years old. Now, initially, early on in the 20th century, being a mukiyoshi, or adopted son-in-law, was looked down as being embarrassing. Some might say a real D-baller. It was looked at as being kind of emasculating. But as Japan's business sector grew and birth rates fell, this practice started being more closely associated with big companies. And being the head of a big company is positive in a capitalist society, so views quickly changed and adoption rates climbed. In fact, Japan has some of the highest adoption rates in the world. And according to The Economist in 2011, there were more than 81,000 adoptions in Japan and 90% of those adoptions were of adult males in their 20s and 30s, the right age to start mentoring someone to take over a family business. And I'll link to this article in the show notes. It's an interesting read, so check it out. Now, this practice also has another benefit. Family-run businesses are surprisingly competitive and often outperform other companies that aren't family-owned. You see, rather than the decay of nepotism, infusing new outside blood to the family bolsters business. So they bring in new ideas that are fresh and, you know, have something to prove. Instead of a disinterested heir who might be lazy and doesn't understand what it takes to maintain an edge, an adopted heir eager to prove himself and keep the name strong brings a focus that encourages lasting power. And that's the story, listeners, of the oldest companies and some of what helps to keep them going. And now you know what I know. 
So this practice is pretty unique in that I believe Japan is the only place that really practices this adoption method. And while women can and do run companies in Japan, usually they are more on the behind the scenes back end of the shop type of thing. A male face of the company is a culturally important key to success in business in Japan. And I find this uncommon business practice to be thought provoking. Can you imagine if the Vanderbilts had practiced this method of adopting a male heir from outside their bloodline to keep motivation going instead of a slow, sad decline to the family name? So strong is this adoption method in Japan that there are even dating websites set up to help facilitate the marrying of young women in business families to a male heir. Brokering this type of marriage is actually quite common, and if you're a fan of anime, like I am, you might notice this custom in some of the backstories, kind of in the background of what's going on. I never thought of it as much of anything, but after researching this episode, I noticed it's a strong cultural custom now, so I'll watch anime a little bit different now. And now I bring you a bit more from the land of Japan, and of course I mean the haiku. The key to success, keeping it in the family, or get adopted. And that's all the time this week, dear listeners. Check out our main site for other incredible stories on IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Send me an email or a haiku through the website. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Give me a rating on iTunes, please. And peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh. And remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word. Get